How's it going, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. I believe this is podcast number 14. And in this podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, this week, some oral arguments took place at the Eighth Circuit level in regards to the ATF's new rule on frames and receivers. There was oral arguments before a three-judge panel in the Eighth Circuit. This is a GOA-led case. It's argued by GOA. So I thought this would be an interesting opportunity to listen to the oral arguments along with you guys. I've already listened to it once, but I thought it'd be a good opportunity for you guys to listen to this, get some of my reactions, because I know quite a bit of you have never really engaged with listening to oral arguments and kind of the procedures that go along with that and and kind of just how that sounds and, and really what could happen. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to do that. And also because this case has huge, huge implications not just for the ATF's new rule on frames and receivers and their restriction of 80 percenters or so-called ghost guns, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but it also has huge implications for other ATF rules like the ATF's new rule on pistol braces, which is being heavily litigated right now in multiple jurisdictions, including the Eighth Circuit. Uh, the Eighth Circuit right now has a case before it or there's a case working its way through the Eighth Circuit. It's actually in a North Dakota district court right now. That's the frack in 25 state lawsuit against the ATF and their pistol brace rule. So that case is moving its way. So what happens here in this Morehouse case has huge implications for those other pistol brace rules and pistol brace lawsuits that are making their way through the process. So again, we're just going to kind of go through this. I might stop it periodically to make some comments on it. Um, I don't really know how you guys would prefer this. So this is kind of going to be a tester to see maybe how you guys like to hear this type of thing. Do you guys want to hear it all the way through? And then maybe me respond after, but I think I'm going to stop it here and there to give my response. But before we jump into this, I want to thank a couple of the main supporters of the podcast here. Uh, first being Blackout Coffee. Blackout Coffee are huge supporters of what I do over on the main channel. And I really appreciate their support. I'm friends with Jared from Guns and Gadgets, who's one of the owners. So if you guys enjoy coffee, if you want to support a company that supports the Second Amendment, I highly recommend you check out Blackout Coffee. And if you order through them using the code ARMSCHOLAR, you can get 10% off. Also, I know quite a bit of you have asked me on the main channel about when I wear this shirt, where I got this from. This is a Trash Panda shirt from TriStar Trading Co. Again, I will leave a link down below where you can find it if you're interested in that. And also any affiliate links, if you guys purchase a shirt like this, um, I get like a small cut from it. But quite a bit of you always ask when I wear the shirt where I got it from, and that's where I got it from. So like I said, we're going to jump into this, and I think this is going to be interesting. What I want to do real quick, though, is kind of set the framework for this, because I, don't, I know not everybody kind of knows how this works, the structure of oral arguments, or even the makeup of this case and why it's before a three-judge panel in the Eighth Circuit. So the case we're going to be listening to and the oral arguments we, we will be listening to is the Morehouse v. ATF case. This, again, is a GOA-led case or a Gun Owners of America-led case, and uh, 17 states joined GOA in this lawsuit, and they are challenging the ATF's new rule on frames and receivers. That new rule on frames and receivers dropped last August, I think it was mid-August, went into effect. And essentially what that rule did is it placed new regulations and restrictions on unfinished frames and receivers or unfinished um, firearms, not really firearms, but what the ATF is claiming is that these 80 percenters, uh, these unfinished frames and receivers are firearms within their own right. 
and therefore they are subject to serialization requirements and background checks as well. What this didn't do is it wasn't a retroactive restriction. So what it did not do is it did not place a serialization requirement or a background check requirement on pre-existing or already owned uh, unfinished frames and receivers. So if you purchased and possessed, possessed an unfinished frame or receiver prior to this rule being published and going into effect in mid-August, uh, it didn't impact you directly at that moment. It wasn't like you had to then take your Polymer 80 into a store to get it serialized and have a background check run on it. It didn't impact those items you already possess. But what it was is it was a future restriction. So after it went into effect, any future sales of unfinished frames and receivers essentially were treated as firearms. So those items had to be serialized by the manufacturer, by the dealer, the importer, whoever, and also a background check had to be run on those sales. So that kind of just sets, there's a lot of other things that happened in this rule, but that's just kind of the brief overview of what the new rule did. And this case is a challenge to that. Now, this case was originally filed in a North Dakota district court and a district court judge there, I believe his name was Peter Wilt, uh, reviewed the case. And what GOA was seeking was a preliminary injunction. A request for a preliminary injunction at the simplest terms is asking for a judge and a court to temporarily halt the enforcement of some sort of action until the full trial can take place. And the goal of that is to essentially maintain the status quo of the law until a court can review whatever issue is at hand. Here would be the constitutionality of the new rule on frames and receivers. Was it a violation of the APA? Other questions like that. So GOA and the 17 states requested a preliminary injunction from the district court here. Now, Interestingly enough, what ended up happening is the district court judge here denied that request for a preliminary injunction. And one of the major issues with this was the rationales that he used to deny the request for a preliminary injunction. Uh, it's, in simplest terms, when he denied that motion, this judge here took the position first that the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin decision which was the new Supreme Court decision, he took the position that the Bruin decision did not directly impact the issue at hand. He took the position that Bruin dealt primarily with the ability to keep and bear arms out in public for self-defense, to concealed carry, but it didn't directly touch on, in his eyes, the ability of manufacturers or dealers to sale items. And he believed that this was an issue of uh, selling items. And his position was that this wasn't a complete ban on the sale or manufacture of these items to the degree that it would impact the Second Amendment because he believed that people still could get access to these items. They could still purchase these items. These manufacturers could still sell them. They just had to simply bend the knee to the ATF and adhere to the ATF's new regulations. So that was kind of the first step that he took in the opinion when he denied the motion. And then the second step was really interesting. What he did is essentially defer to the ATF and some of their responses to comments of the notice proposed, proposed rule. 
and and that was issued in the final rule. If you're not familiar what ends up happening, for example, in the ATF when they want to release a new rule, they will do a notice of a proposed rulemaking. They will have the language that they are indicating that they would like to put into effect, and then they open it up to public comment. And there will be a period of time where people can comment on that proposed rule. And then the ATF must respond to all those public comments. And that's what happened with the frames and receivers rule. The ATF put out their proposed rule. We all commented on it. And then later they issued their final rule and responded to it. So that's kind of the procedure that took place. So that should set the framework of what you guys, I, I guess, understand what this case is. Now, essentially what this judge said in response to the final rule, the ATF, I guess in his eyes, properly addressed the Second Amendment question of whether or not this was a violation of the Second Amendment. He said that the information that the ATF had at the time was properly addressed by the ATF, and he completely ignored the fact that Bruin came out a month before the final rule was published and the ATF did not review the final rule in light of Bruin. And this has actually become a major issue in a big part of these litigations, not only just with the frames and receivers rule, but now with the pistol brace rule is the fact that the ATF is violating or potentially violating the APA by not taking into account all data and research that they are required to under the APA process. What that means is, since there is a Supreme Court decision out there like Bruin now, the ATF must look at their rule in light of Bruin. That is one of the requirements for them to be properly doing the right thing under the APA. Now, they're not doing that. The ATF is not uh, looking at their rules in light of relevant history and tradition, which is required under Bruin. They're not presenting relevant history and tradition. They're not trying to justify their new rules under history and tradition. They're completely ignoring it. And essentially what the judge here said is it's okay. They tried their best with the information they had at the, at the time. Bruin came out after, but really came out a month before the final rule. So he gave them a pass and denied the motion for preliminary injunction, which GOA and the 17 states were, were requesting. Now that sets the groundwork. GOA and the 17 states obviously are not going to let that sit. So they appealed that up to the Eighth Circuit. And what's that? That's known as an interlocutory appeal. It's essentially an appeal on a middle process of a case. So it's not an appeal of a final determination of the case. It's not like this went to the full trial, GOA lost, and now they're appealing it up to the Eighth Circuit. What happened is they lost kind of one of these middle battles, which was a motion for a preliminary injunction. So they submitted an interlocutory appeal. And that went up to the Eighth Circuit, and a three-judge panel here is reviewing this issue. And those are going to be the oral arguments that we listen to. Now, this is just going to be audio. They don't indicate which judge is speaking. Um, I've listened to this once. What ends up happening with the audio format, which is a little bit frustrating, is it pretty much starts at the beginning of the discussion of the oral arguments. And what you'll hear is the GOA representative, I believe his name is... Rob Olson, he is speaking to the three-judge three judge panel there in the Eighth Circuit. Then he will finish his questioning. Um, also, for importance for you guys, if you're going to listen to this, is you need to understand that 
what this what or arguments really are is the judges testing the outer bounds of your arguments. They will throw hypotheticals at you. They will ask you hard questions to figure out kind of what are the edges of your position. And really, if you fully thought out all the nuances of your position. So they will challenge you on these various aspects. You may get frustrated because it sounds like the judges are interrupting some of these individuals who are speaking, but that's just the way the process works. The judges have the ability and the authority to interrupt you, to ask you hypotheticals, and the attorneys here must respond. So GOA's attorney, you will hear him speak first, and then it will transition over to the attorney who is representing the 17 states who have joined in this lawsuit with GOA. Then it will shift over to the ATF's attorney, and then there will be a short rebuttal from the GOA's attorney because uh, the attorney there can reserve time for rebuttal, which he does. So then he will respond to some of the positions taken by the ATF. So again, that sets the framework for everything you need to know going into listening to these oral arguments. And without further ado, let's start listening to these. And like I said, I may interrupt here and there, uh, but I want you guys to be able to listen to this because I think this is an interesting uh, kind of point where, you know, it's it's an interesting learning thing that you guys could maybe are interested in that a lot of people don't really engage with very often. So here we go. Enacted and the Congress never considered, but claiming that Congress had it considered these problems that the agency now purports to have identified would have wanted it to be this way. And below we have a district court that very uncritically just sort of looked at what the agency had done. And even though a lot of these things weren't in the statute, just simply accepted that they were matters of good policy and that the law should be this way. But that is just not the way law is made. Now, we acknowledge that this is a highly technical, complex case that requires a lot of understanding, not only of federal gun law, but also some understanding of firearms themselves. And it might be tempting to just sort of assume that the agency with expertise and, and knowledge on the subject matter has gotten things right. And I suspect that the agency might get up here today and ask the court to simply trust that they understand the way these things work. But that would be a major mistake we submit, that there are mistakes in this final rule that are not just wrong, but they're embarrassingly wrong. Um, and I would like to just sort of highlight a few of those today because this is just a, a voluminous uh, final rule. But the first thing that I'd like to talk about is, is weapon parts kits and this idea that the, the agency admits that these, these collections of parts do not have a frame or receiver, which is required to be a firearm, but nevertheless somehow constitute a firearm. And on the theory that now ATF has put forward, firearms do not have to have frames or receivers. And they say this actually three times in their brief. I'm reading from page 24. Nowhere does the act or the common sense definition of weapon suggest any requirement that the weapon include a frame or receiver. Reading such a requirement into the statute would undermine Congress's intent. That's not Congress's intent. That is in the statute. The statute that defines a firearm says it's either a weapon or the frame or receiver of a weapon. It talks about where you mark a firearm on the frame or receiver of a weapon. The whole purpose of the Gun Control Act was to move away from regulating all gun parts so the statute doesn't define frame or receiver. That is correct. Why doesn't ATF get some, you know, Chevron deference or something along those lines um, in defining those things? As, as the Vanderstock courts have recognized in Texas, they are taking items that they just admitted are not frames and receivers, a kit that does not have a finished frame or receiver, but using this concept of readily 
that even if it's not finished, even if it's not complete, even if we otherwise wouldn't regulate it, the idea that you can finish it into a firearm makes it a frame or receiver. I want to pause right there. So that was an important dis uh, kind of discussion that's happening. So you heard the first judge ask a question. Essentially, he's asking if you are conceding that the frames and receivers is not fully defined in the statute, why does the ATF not get something like Chevron deference? And simplest term Chevron deference is when an agency is given deference by a court when they come up with some sort of interpretation of a statute or ambiguous law. So the judge is here, here asking here, why don't they get Chevron deference? And GOA's attorney is responding, and he uses the Vanderstock decision, which is a federal district court decision down in, in Texas. It's a Texas federal court. And what the judge there found was that you, it, there was a lot of things that happened there, but I think what what's happening here and what he's pointing to is the fact that you can't give Chevron deference to an agency when they are flip-flopping. They essentially lose Chevron deference if they've issued multiple inconsistent positions and interpretations on this very issue. And very recently, they issued their opinion before this final rule, identifying that parts kits and these kits with unfinished frames and receivers in them that they are not firearms within their own right. So they are flip-flopping consistently and courts have found that an agency like the ATF will not get Chevron deference if they've engaged in that type of flip-flopping. And some courts also, the Vanderstock court found that Chevron deference should not even be used when you're dealing with a criminal statutory implication here like the uh, GCA would, would implicate. So that's kind of what they're hitting at there. I just thought that was an important thing to point out. Did you say you think the statute defines firearm to include a frame or receiver? It, subsection A says a weapon. Subsection B says the frame or receiver of any such weapon. The frame or receiver is a firearm. The frame or receiver itself that. is a firearm, correct. But a firearm could also is also a weapon, any weapon. That's correct, Your Honor. Those are separate. Separate things. Separate uh, meanings of firearm. They are. Okay. <clears throat> and so... so I mean, we know that firearms have frames and receivers, but here ATF is saying that they do not have frames and receivers if they are in a weapons parts kit. On the other hand, we have silencers, which the final rule now claims silencers have frames or receivers. No one has ever thought this until now. In fact, we have ATF for decades. Back in 1985, we have a letter that I'm not sure they knew they wrote, but it says a, a silencer does not have a frame or receiver. But now, 90 years later, after the National Firearms was passed, now they do have frames or receivers. So we're left in this weird situation where guns that we all know have frames or receivers don't, where silencers that no one ever thought did do, and it just it makes absolutely no sense. Um, ATF wants to codify this classification system that they have where you send us a product, a sample, we will give you back a letter and tell you what we think this thing is. And in that part of the regulation, ATF says no one else can rely on these letters except the specific person to whom the letter is addressed. And with respect to no other firearm with other than the specific sample that was submitted. But if you look elsewhere in the final rule, when it comes to defining what a frame or receiver is, ATF says, well, our definition doesn't apply to everything because we've been making it up for years. And so we can't write a definition that encompasses all firearms. So go back to our classification letters that we'd issued in the past and everyone can rely on those. They just said no one can rely on those. And now they say you can rely on them, not just for the particular make model of firearm that was submitted, but for variants thereof. So 
they're, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Both of these things cannot simultaneously be true, but they're both in the same rulemaking. Well, so again, important what GOA's attorney there is just pointing out the blatant inconsistencies that happen within this new rule on frames and receivers. And it's not isolated to just this, this specific rule. It's happened in the pistol brace rule. It's happened in the bump stock rule. It's happened with a ton of ATF actions where they are very inconsistent in the very same rule. They'll say one thing at the beginning and then a few paragraphs later, they'll say something else. So that that's what they're trying to hit on there is just how arbitrary, capricious, and how inconsistent this rulemaking really is. Let's go back. I'd like to go back to, to Judge Grunder's question. The statute doesn't define a frame or receiver. So would you disagree that the, um, that the uh, government can, through regulation, define, give a definition? I think they could get, they have given a definition in back in 1970. It never worked and they are trying to update. So they're trying to update the definition. So we all agree that that's okay to do that. Um, If if they do something, but you don't like the update. So that becomes the question is, is the update so out of the bounds of, of rational government rulemaking that, that we can't, that we should enter an injunction on a temporary basis is what you're saying. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example here. There was a, a letter that ATF issued about a month before the proposed rule was promulgated, and someone sent in, and I'm, I'm not, you can't make this stuff up, a metal water bottle like I have on the table there, and said, can you classify this? Because I, here on a piece of paper, I think, well, here's the instructions, I think I could take this water bottle, turn it into a frame or receiver, add some other parts, and turn it into a firearm. Can you tell me what this metal water bottle is? And you would think this would be an easy question, but the agency actually wrote back, this is exhibit 42 in our complaint, and they used the same principles that are in the final rule, that an incomplete frame receiver, can, if it can be readily converted to one, is if a weapons parts kit, other parts can be added, could be a firearm. And they conclude in that letter that a metal water bottle might actually be a firearm under the, under the Gun Control Act, and in fact might be a machine gun under the National Firearms Act, and they can't say for sure. And that was the letter that ATF wrote applying the principles in this final rule. Um, similarly, the plastic water bottle that my co-counsel has on the table, ATF says a silencer, which the statute says has to be uh, designed and intended for a specific purpose. It has to be for use, either a part combination of parts. It has to be for something. ATF says this plastic, uh, is, I'm sorry, the final rule says that a silencer is now just <coughs> contains all the parts necessary to function. Well, if you took a plastic water bottle and slid it over the end of a barrel of a firearm, wrapped a couple rolls of tape around, you have all the parts necessary to function as a silencer simply by pulling the trigger. So they remove all of the mens rea type of concepts from the statute. And so we have plastic water bottles or silencers, metal water bottles or machine guns. You can rely on our, our letters. You can't rely on our letters. It just, it's, this is what the Supreme Court, I think, had in mind just a couple of weeks ago in Bittner of the United States says, when the government speaks out of both sides of its mouth, no one should be surprised if its latest utterance isn't the most convincing one. Um, this, these are just examples of what happens when a decision is made to order bureaucrats, regulators, to enact a political decision that Congress considered did not enact in recent legislation, regardless of what the law says, regardless of what the past 50 years of agency precedent say, and irrespective of any technical precision. But as the judge in the Vanderstock case recognized, these are criminal statutes, precision is required. And he said precise wording demands precise application. 
and I see I'm already eating into my rebuttal, so if I can reserve the rest of my time. You have any more no. questions? No. Okay, very well. Why don't you save the balance for rebuttal? Thank you. So like I said, what, we're, what happens is they're going to take this in section. So there you heard GOA's attorney make their primary arguments. Now it's going to shift over to the attorney for the 17 states. But there is important. The whole goal of GOA's attorney, I think, was to essentially show how absurd this new rule on frames and frames and receivers really is, how there are a ton of inconsistencies in it, and how also there are inconsistencies from what the ATF has said prior. Um, prior, the ATF has said multiple times, multiple, multiple times, that an unfinished frame receiver a parts kit, these types of items are not firearms within their own right. Now, all of a sudden, they've changed all that. They say, listen to them this time. The whole time when they were sending all these other guidance out, that was not correct. They really don't identify what they were doing there. Um, maybe the, I mean, we've seen with the pistol brace rule, they said, well, we, we weren't standardizing our review process or standardizing our position. We've seen them do that in the pistol brace rule. I'm assuming that's kind of their position with the frames and receivers stuff also. Um, but the whole goal of GOA's attorney was to show how inconsistent the ATF is really being and also how absurd this rule is with the reality of how a bottle could be a, a suppressor under the new rule, how really a block of aluminum, as people say, could be a new an unfinished frame or receiver and therefore could be a firearm. Um and just a ton of other homemade items could be considered to be a silencer or a suppressor. So that was the GOA's goal. You heard a little bit of pushback for some of the judges asking about, well, why shouldn't we just give the ATF Chevron deference um, and things of that nature. So now we're going to move on to the attorney for the 17 states. Uh, Ms. Smith-Gall, we'll hear from you next. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Kathleen Smithgall, and I represent the state of Montana and the Coalition of Appellant States. As Mr. Olson already explained, the ATF's final rule presents several key problems. Uh, for the next few minutes, I'd like to focus on the logical outgrowth test and then the gun registry argument that we raised in our briefing. So I'd first like to turn to the procedural issues with the rule. And I'll first highlight the differences in the um, proposed definition of frame and receiver, and then the um, final definition. And then I'll talk about how that, based on other uh, examples in other courts, this final rule is not a logical outgrowth of what the agency proposed. So the several key differences um, worth mentioning is, you know, the proposed definition here encompassed any housing structure for any fire control component. Uh, the final decision only described a single specific housing or structure for one specific type of fire control component. So the proposed rule envisioned, you know, defined numerous different parts as frames and receivers, but the final rule at least attempted to make it so that one specific part of every firearm is a frame and receiver. The proposed definition provided four enumerated examples of um, frames and receivers. The final rule added six additional ones that people were not able to comment on. Um, and then the proposed rule uh, defined frame and receiver as one term. The final rule broke that out into separate uh, frame and receiver definitions. And taken together, these differences show that the final rule was not a logical outgrowth of the proposed rule and that the public didn't have fair notice to be able to comment on the final rule as uh, written by the agency. 
Um, and to satisfy the logical outgrowth test, uh, we always talk about fair notice. And what this means is that the um, public was on notice of the particular changes that the agency was considering making, um, that those changes were reasonably foreseeable and in character with uh, the original proposal. Of course, this all gives the public an opportunity to meaningfully comment on every important component of the final rule. And this court has said that simple notice of the subjects and issues involved is not sufficient notice and doesn't satisfy the logical outgrowth test. And the district court here didn't grapple with what, what that test actually requires and instead concluded that simply because the final rule was somehow narrower than the proposed rule, um, that satisfied the logical outgrowth test. But again, we, we talk about fair notice, and the standard is whether the parties, the public, was able to comment on the particular changes that the agency was considering. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the simple, just simply notifying the public that the agency was considering altering the definition broadly is not sufficient notice for, for the public to be able to comment on these specific changes that were made. Well, there must be some middle. So I just want to stop there. What she's talking about, her main argument is talking about how this new rule is a violation of the APA because there was a difference from the notice for proposed rulemaking. There was a change from the proposed rule to the final rule in which the public was not given the ability to comment on. And under the APA process, the argument is that us, the public, should have been, should have been given the opportunity to, to comment on those changes, to comment on those theories. Um, the district court's opinion was, well, since the proposed rule may have been broader, may have had a broader definition of what an unfinished frame receiver is, and the final rule was a little bit more narrow in its approach, that means that there wasn't a violation here, a violation of the logical outgrowth uh, test. So that's the position she's taking here. And now you're going to hear some pushback from the judges on this theory. Ground, though, because when you keep saying they couldn't comment on the specific changes that were made, that would mean that the agency can't change the rule at all. So, Your Honor. Unless, unless it gives alternatives in the notice. Your, your proposed standard there would mean they can't modify it in response to comments. So there must be some middle ground here. Yes, Your Honor. And we're, we're certainly not advocating for some sort of Goldilocks moment where, you know, the agency either has to, you know, can't change too much, but also can't change too little. But the logical outgrowth test is a spectrum of, of possibilities for the agency, of course, as you noted, to respond to comments. And here we have kind of two extremes. We have this um, initial proposed rule that is envisioning all sorts, I mean, in the complaint we talked about um, how firearms would have upwards of 10, 15 frames or receivers in it. And we have the final rule where the agency says, actually, we're redefining this theory of what constitutes a frame and receiver, and um, each firearm should only have one. Um, and uh, this, this court, I point the court to the Citizens Telecom Telecommunications case. Um, and in that case, the, uh, kind of the key takeaway is that the agency, if the agency is going to un uh, change the underlying theory, um, then, then that wouldn't satisfy the logical outgrowth test. Um, in that case, the agency uh, proposed a, a rule that was largely viewed as uh, regulatory, and then it ended up in a place that was largely deregulatory. And of course, this was a, a kind of uh, sea change on the theory underlying the proposal. Here, likewise, um, we have this idea that all these different parts can constitute a frame or receiver. We end up in a place that's much more narrow, very specific, again, with very specific examples. Um, and in citizens' uh, telecommunications, 
likewise, um, there were the kind of issue was this, these business data services. And in the proposed rule, the agency um, defined these two different services, acknowledged that they were different, but treated them the same under the proposed rule. And in the final rule, broke those into two separate um, regulations. And similarly here, we see the agency treating frame and receiver the same in the proposed definition and then treating them, breaking them out differently in the final definition. And so again, kind of all these changes together um, suggest that the agency did not satisfy the logical outgrowth test. Be, be, I want to make sure you address before you finish your argument, the government's contention that the states lack standing. Uh, now, if you're joined with the, it's not entirely clear whether you've actually joined the complaint, you, you, it's not, there's no amended complaint that adds the states. You filed your own separate complaint. Why do you have standing in this case? Yes, Your Honor, because the states have, each of the states um, represented here has an interest in lowering crime and um, pursuing their own law enforcement policy. I want to stop right here. Anytime I hear a judge question standing, it's a huge red flag to me because I think this has become the easy out for judges nowadays, especially in two-way cases. And I'm worried that that's maybe what's happening here with this specific judge. Um, any Again, like I said, anytime a judge is questioning standing, like, well, why do you have standing here? I don't think you have standing. Like, do you have standing to bring this lawsuit? Uh, it just worries me. And when I originally listened to this and I heard this, um, again, it worried me. And, and later on, you'll hear him still push back on this after you hear the state's representative put forward her response for why she believes the 17 states do have standing policies. And um, this uh, rule- Is there a policy on the books of the state of Montana or any of the other states that says we want more citizens to have guns? Uh, not something that expressly, Your Honor, but um, each of these states has adopted a more guns, less crime approach to law enforcement and has uh, passed very permissive laws for firearm manufacturers and individuals um, seeking to obtain manufacture firearms themselves. And so what this, um, you know, the agency has said that under this rule, uh, there will be licensees that go out of business. Of course, their goal is to decrease circulations of certain firearms, and that contradicts um, our state policies. And again, uh, law enforcement is something that's uh, been his, uh, left to the states. And so um, the states have standing for um, based on their sovereign interests and in, in lower those, crime. Aren't, aren't those harms pretty general and pretty indirect? It takes several steps of logic to get to that to get to the harm caused by this. Isn't it too general and and too indirect to give you standing? Not in this case, Your Honor, because again, we have the agency saying that they know, I mean, we know for a fact that this will put licensees, I think everyone here agrees that this will put certain licensees out of business. And the goal of this rule is to decrease circulation of certain firearms um, and, and their, their component parts. That may give licensees standing because it's a kind of a direct harm there, but a pretty indirect to get to a harm to the state. Well, and then from there, Your Honor, the states, the fact that there are fewer guns, again, contradicts the state's own permissive regulations, which are based on an idea that the more guns, the, uh, the less crime. And, and again, the law enforcement structure being centered on that theory. And so the fact that there are now going to be fewer guns in circulation and fewer um, businesses um, is, is, is a harm to the states. Why should we issue an injunction that's nationwide that, that, that impacts states who believe more guns means more crime? 
Why shouldn't we, assuming you're right, why won't we delimit it to the states that have that philosophy and not impose it on a state, which I assume would be Minnesota, for example, that believes that more guns means more crime? Because, Your Honor, at the end of the day, I mean, the question we're trying to answer here is what is a firearm? And that what that means um, imposes criminal liability. Um, and so for if something is illegal in one state um, under federal law, it has to be illegal in all the states. And so in this case, uh, a nationwide injunction is. But you're, at, you're saying you want your philosophy imposed on the whole country. What if some states have a different philosophy? Well, Your Honor, and I, I go back. So um, well, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> So uh, that you know, that's our basis uh, for standing here. The reason why this law um, is uh, violates the APA, as I was saying, is because of the final rule uh, is not a logical outgrowth of the proposed rule, and so that that the agency, regardless of um, whatever you know, whatever purported emergency exists or purported problem it's trying to solve, still has to follow notice and comment rulemaking process, and so that, that's the problem. Going back to that point, state again your concern about the change in the frame between the notice and the final rule. You said they changed. I just want to stop. So I think the response to the standing issue, um, I don't know if she was not anticipating to get that question. Um, again, like I said, anytime that question pops up, I think it's a, a red flag. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, states have the ability to engage in their own law enforcement. I would have hoped that they would have had some other arguments to show additional standing beyond that because it didn't seem like the judge was really buying that. Um, and also they question about why would we issue then a nationwide injunction? Why would we not just limit it to the 17 states and their law enforcement issue if they want more more guns in their state? I would have liked maybe some arguments about the economic impacts on these states because of further regulation by the federal government, maybe – uh, diminishing revenue for these 17 states, so, something I, I would have wished maybe for a little a deeper arguments for standing. And and again, really could have just been because they weren't anticipating getting questioned on whether or not these 17 states have a right to challenge this overreaching ATF new regulation. So just kind of my two cents. Can you articulate that one more time? Yeah. So, so kind of three big changes. First, then the big one is that the proposed rule envisioned multiple, uh, you know, each firearm containing multiple yeah. parts. Um, then you have the one definition to two definitions. And then you have the idea that the, and then you also have the agency adding in numerous examples, you know, went from four examples to 10 examples. Each of those examples, the agency saying this constitutes a frame or receiver. And the, again, the public was not on fair notice that the agency was considering any of those changes. And so it doesn't satisfy the logical outgrowth test. Adding more examples wouldn't be a logical outgrowth. Well, Your Honor, in, in context of the other changes as well, again, moving from this very broad definition to a very specific narrow definition. And what the district court said was that that just the broad to narrow movement was sufficient. And while that may be the case in some circumstances, going from a very broad rule to a more narrow rule, this rule was just simply too broad, as was not, um a lot of people commented on how, how broad the rule was. I see my time's expired, so unless you have further questions. Have more questions. Okay. <laughs> All right, very well. Thank you for your argument. Thank you. So that was the 17 states attorney, and now we're going to move to the ATF's representative and his arguments and position of why this is legal, what the ATF is doing. All right, Mr. Janda, we'll hear from you for the... Please. Uh, thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court, Sean Janda for the federal government. 
Uh, I think it will be helpful to start this morning uh, by just taking a step back uh, to think about what the rule uh, does and doesn't do. So the rule is not aimed at, and in fact, does not prohibit the possession, the buying, the selling, uh, the assembly of any firearm uh, by any licensee uh, or by any person who can lawfully possess firearms. Uh, instead, the rule is aimed at just ensuring the effective um, continued implementation of the Gun Control Act requirements that firearms be um, serialized, that they be sold uh, following background checks, and that records be kept um, of their acquisition and disposition. I just want to stop there because this is the classic ATF position. We're not banning anything. You know, we're not saying you can't buy it. We're not saying you can't sell it. You can just buy it. All we're saying is you can only buy them and sell them the way in which we tell you you can. So kind of just the start of the classic ATF arguments of this isn't a ban. Well, let's pump the brakes and start from the, the very beginning. This We're not banning anything. We're just super regulating them. Uh, and Congress has determined that those requirements are, are critical components of the nation's gun safety scheme. Uh, they prevent firearms from falling into the hands of those like felons who cannot lawfully possess them. Uh, and they ensure that when firearms are used in crimes, law enforcement has the ability to trace those firearms uh, and try and solve the crime. Uh, and so the rule really is just aimed at those things. Um, I, th I think the district court properly understood the scope and the import of the rule in denying the request for a preliminary injunction. Uh, the district court correctly concluded that the rule fully comports with the statute uh, and is reasonable and reasonably explained. Uh, the district court also independently and correctly concluded that the plaintiffs haven't shown any irreparable harm from the rule um, and that the balance of the equities and the public interest uh, weigh against a preliminary injunction. Uh, each of those findings is correct. Uh, any provides a basis to affirm the district court's denial of a preliminary injunction. So the new definition of firearm includes parts, right? Uh, it includes an assemblage of parts that can be readily converted to an operational firearm. No, it so not much. sort of individual barrels or stocks or whatever standing alone, uh, but just the, uh, sort of a, just parts. Yeah, as the rule says, kind of a weapon parts kit uh, that, taken together collectively, enables one to assemble uh, an operational firearm. So, so all of the parts. If you buy a kit that is missing a some sort of striking mechanism but has every other part is that regulated or not uh, so i think it would depend i, I want to stop here so when i first listened to this i really think this is going to be a case that fails because of the knowledge of the judges i don't fully think these judges understand what they are dealing with here when you talk about these parts kits because what you hear the judge here talking about like oh what if it doesn't have a striker Primarily what the ATF is is targeting is like these polymer 80 kits, you know, with the unfinished polymer 80 frame with some other components, jigs and things like that to build out the the handgun frame and or unfinished receiver frame. And when these judge judges hear parts kits, they're thinking of like going on primary arms and and buying like an AR kit to uh, assemble it. Um, I think they're thinking not really what the ATF is targeting here. And I, again, I think this is going to be one of those cases that fails because there's a lack of understanding of the items that we are actually talking about here in this litigation. On the specifics of the, the kit and ATF, we have to make that determination. I don't want to say the kit has to have sort of every single individual part that if you have to you know, provide your own single screw to finish 
the assembly that's not covered. But, but I think the rule uh, quite clearly is aimed at these kits that um, taken together uh, with sort of all of these parts as one assembled object um, are our firearms in their statute are designed to or may rightly be converted to a yeah, well spell. That, let me, uh, again, I don't want to interrupt a ton, but I think it's also, again, a failure of the court, because I think if any of these judges actually knew what the ATF was doing, there would be immediate pushback on that comment saying, well, the ATF has been sending out letters, and prior to this rule even being published and being finalized or going into full force and effect, the ATF was sending out letters to various companies like JSD Supply and others, and essentially threatening to shut them down just because they would sell an, a polymer 80, say, on their website, but they also sold other parts. They were taking the position like you didn't even have to sell these all at once in one kit. The simple fact that you had these parts available on your website would be sufficient enough to call, then call that a firearm. So again, it's the ATF, of course, isn't telling the full story. They're going to tell the half-truths to fit the narrative that they want to feed to these judges. Set aside that issue, which I think is an interesting issue, but let me set that aside. Uh, elsewhere in the statute, uh, I think with respect to destructive devices, Congress used the word parts, right? Correct. Doesn't their failure to do so with respect to defining firearms suggest that Congress knows how to include parts if they want to, and they didn't with respect to firearms, and therefore this exceeds the scope of the statute. Uh, no, Your Honor. I mean, I think if you look at the other definitions in the statute that speak in terms of parts, they're generally aimed at um, allowing the regulation or requiring the regulation of individual parts. So the silencer definition, for example, um, includes any part that is intended for use only in fabricating or assembling a silencer. Uh, here, ATF is not trying to regulate um, and is not regulating sort of every individual part of a gun, but only those assemblages of parts that are, uh, as, we, as the rule says, sort of designed to um, readily assembled uh, or converted into being operational firearms. And I think just as a conceptual matter, sort of stepping back, uh, there's really no difference between a kit that sort of has all the disassembled parts of a firearm and a firearm that has been assembled and disassembled. And as we explained in our briefs, there's ample precedent, including from this court, recognizing that disassembled firearms uh, constitute firearms for purposes um, of the Gun Control Act's definition. And again, it just, I think, flows. So again, boldface lie by the ATF. His position right there was there is no difference between, let's say, a polymer 80 kit with the jig and all those things than if I were to pull out one of my Glocks from the safe and disassemble it. He's saying that firearm is the same as this parts kit. Well, there is a significant difference between the two. This kit over here won't function unless I actually do something to it, unless I drill it and do the instructions with the jigs and all that stuff. It will not function as a firearm. This one, if I disassemble as it is, and I put it back together, it will, it will operate. So again, just a very disingenuous position by the ATF. And I think, again, they're playing off the lack of knowledge that these judges have about the items that we are actually talking about in this lawsuit. Quite clearly from the plain text of the statute, a kit that has all of these parts is both designed to and may rarely be converted to expel a projectile by the action of an explosive. Um, and there might be sort of a hard edge case about a kit missing sort of a critical component um, or sort of a number of components that would not themselves be individually regulated. 
Uh, and so we, uh, we recognize there are edge cases out there. Uh, the rule, uh, obviously, an ATF provides uh, a mechanism for trying to get clarity on those edge cases. But I don't think the presence of sort of some edge cases detracts from the, the fundamental understanding that a kit that, that does contain all those parts that does allow the ready assembly of a firearm, uh, it fits under the plain language of the statute. Let me try a similar argument with respect to the serialization requirement. Um, as I understand it, the, the statute provides that um, importers and manufacturers are required to include a serial number, um, but doesn't include dealers. And elsewhere in the statute, when Congress wants to include dealers, they include dealers. Um, so isn't it beyond the scope of the statute to now require dealers to serialize these parts and kits and guns? Uh, so I don't think so, Your Honor. And let me say sorry, two things about that. So, so first, just thinking about what Congress was intending to do or not do, um, I think when you read the statute, it seems like Congress probably thought they were covering uh, most of the waterfront when it came to the serialization requirement um, because how are firearms produced, they're, they're manufactured or they're imported. Um, and there's no need to then require the dealer uh, who will generally be buying firearms from an importer or from a manufacturer who has already serialized the firearm uh, to add the serial number. And so I don't think there's some implication, uh, and, and they certainly haven't pointed to any suggestion, more sort of explicit or direct suggestion, that Congress was intentionally excluding uh, licensed dealers from that requirement. And then when it comes to the authority that the Attorney General and the ATF um, have employed to, to make the requirement here, I think there's two important sources of authority. So one is uh, 18 U.S.C. 926A, which is the general authority to promulgate regulations that are necessary um, to implement the statute. And then the other comes in uh, 923G, which provides more specific authority to implement, uh, to promulgate record keeping requirements. Um, and there are sort of longstanding regulatory requirements. They're not challenged in this case that dealers record um, as part of the record when they acquire or dispose of a firearm, the serial number. Uh, it's, I think in many ways, the most important part of the record uh, because it's what allows the tracing of a firearm when it's recovered, for example, at a crime scene. Um, and, and as the rule explains, uh, that record-keeping requirement is just ineffective if there's no serial number for the dealer to record. And so all the rule does is well, say... Well, the statute doesn't refer to recording a serial number, does it? That comes in a regulation, as I understand it. Uh, that, that's correct, John. So the statute requires uh, dealers, uh, along with other licensed individuals, to make records and keep records sort of as the attorney general shall prescribe. Um, in regulations, and the Attorney General has long required the use of a serial number, uh, the right. recording of a serial number. Is I think that, that... But is that limited to cases in which the dealer's recording something that already exists? Uh, so it is true, Your Honor. For, is there any other precedent? Is there any precedent, I should say, for asking the dealers to create new material that would then be recorded? Uh, so this is a new requirement. Uh, I think the rule makes clear that there was not previously a requirement. Uh, that dealers... Well, I know the serial number thing is new, but I mean, is there any other example of? Uh, I'm not aware of any other information that you just wouldn't have. I mean, the records. So you just heard the ATF concede that this is something completely new that they are doing with this rule, which we all knew. But the implication of that is you are now writing something into the regulation which is not mandated by the statute itself. And that's the pushback you're hearing here from the judges. 
you know, under the statute, there are very clear indications about importers and manufacturers having to serialize things. And there's very specific record keeping things within the statute. But what the ATF is doing here is going beyond that and adding things in. And so the judge here is pushing back, trying to figure out, okay, where are you, where are you garnering this authority from? Where, where is this coming from? Now, the ATF's response is, you know, in the statute, there is broad they claim there is broad discretion that Congress is giving to the ATF to implement this new this law. You know, there's broad discretion to implement this law. And so the ATF, that's all they're doing here. They're just using their broad authority to implement the claimed intent of Congress, that Congress intended all these things to be covered. They simply failed. They only thought that manufacturers and importers would be the ones creating these items. They never thought that dealers or individuals would be engaged in privately manufactured firearms or, or, or firearms is what they call them, but items. So again, that's just, it's sometimes frustrating, frustrating to, to listen to these arguments by the ATF. I think generally require you to uh, record sort of who you're acquiring the firearm from, who you're disposing of it to, um, and they require the serial number. Uh, and so, I mean, I think the serial number, uh, again, I'm not, I don't want to say this for sure, uh, but, but I'm just not sure if there are a whole bunch of things in the record keeping requirements that sort of could not exist, the dealer would be required to create. Um, and I think here, again, there's just the record keeping is just totally ineffective if there's no serial number um, to, to record. And so the rule just requires that when a dealer is going to be making a record, when the dealer has taken the firearm into inventory, um, is going to have to record its acquisition and its disposition that the dealer uh, ensure that that record is effective. Um, and now, is the rule designed so that that would only come into play with respect to firearms that are already in existence and that going forward under the rule, the private makers would have to put a serial number on or no? Uh, no, Your Honor. So the rule does not require someone who makes a firearm for their own personal use uh, to serialize it. Um, I mean, I think. So you're concerned about, or the ATF is concerned about somebody who does that and then later transfers it to a dealer? Right. So, so ATF. Would not be covered by a license requirement, the transfer to the dealer. Uh, so the transfer to the dealer, um, I, I think the real sort of issue is when the dealer, let me back up. So the statute imposes record keeping requirements um, that are then sort of fleshed out in regulations. Those record-keeping requirements are on dealers and importers and manufacturers, on licensees, not on private individuals. So when a dealer acquires or disposes of a firearm, the dealer is required to make a record. Um, right, when I'm just asking, how would a dealer get an unserialized firearm after this rule goes into effect? From uh, a private manufacturer who makes it for his own use and then later gives it to a dealer? Correct. So again, I think I want to stop here because this is a failure of understanding about what we are talking about here and the implications of this ATF new rule. The judge here is confused about, okay, well, how would a dealer come into possession of one of these unserialized, unfinished frames of receivers? Well, yes, there could be someone who has privately manufactured one of these items and um, privately makes one of these items, 3D prints something, had a polymer 80 before, made it and then later goes to a, a dealer and says, Hey, I want to sell this or I mean, really wouldn't do that anyways. They can't, but um, so that's what they're talking about here, but there's a lack of understanding that a lot of these 
kits, a lot of these items were, were and are already in the possession of these dealers. And therefore, under this rule, they are going to mandate that these gun stores, that these dealers must serialize them on their own so that they can get rid of that inventory or to sell that inventory going forward. And also all these companies like Polymer 80, Defense Distributed, Tactical Machining, you know, who are 80% Arms, all these other companies who built their business on unfinished firearms um, or unfinished frames and receivers. See, I don't even want, you listen to this stuff. Sometimes you it pick up their language. I hate it. Um, these unfinished items, they will then need to serialize their items to then sell them going forward. So again, just a lack of understanding and a lot of the dialogue here. But I think one of the interesting things we'll hear here in a little bit is even with the narrow discussion about, okay, a private individual going to a, a gun store and having that interaction with the gun store, what happens with the serialization requirements under this new rule. Um, I think so the judges still even find issue with that narrow subset without fully knowing that, hey, there is this much larger implication. So they're finding a problem even in this narrow uh, private individual gun store interaction. So, so a private manufacturer who, I mean, could sell it to a dealer or could bring it to a dealer for um, repairs, repairs or uh, sort of other operations. Uh -huh. uh, and if the, this is, I think, important, if the dealer takes that firearm into its inventory um, as part of that process, which the dealer doesn't necessarily have to do, if the dealer can... Not for repair, you wouldn't have to. Uh, right. I mean, as long as you can do the repair, sort of, you know, the day you get it, you do the repair, you hand it back. Uh, this requirement doesn't apply. It only applies if... If you have to keep it a week to do the repair, would you? Would it be? Would that be taking it into inventory? <laughs> yes. Uh, so the rule okay. uses sort of an overnight requirement. Overnight. So if you are keep, if, if you the dealer are keeping custody of the then firearm, then the dealer does have to serialize it. Correct. Serialize it, and uh, you'll make a record, record. of the, right. the acquisition. Right. So it, let me make sure. I have, so if they they just take it in for repair, they have to serialize it. Is that what you just said? Uh, you keep it overnight. Right. If they keep it overnight. So so if you give it back. And I, th I think the point here is that if someone comes in and gives you their firearm and you sort of repair it that afternoon and give it back, you, you haven't really taken custody of it. You haven't taken it into your inventory. Um, if you keep it overnight, uh, then it's part of your inventory and you have to record it and serialize it. Does a manufacturer have to be licensed to transfer to a dealer for resale? Uh, so a manufacturer has to be licensed to manufacture. Um, so, so if you are engaged in the business of manufacturing firearms. I mean, if you're just a private manufacturer. Uh, no, so if you are. your own use, but you decide later, I want to resell, I want to make some money off of this. So I'm taking it down to a dealer to. Uh, so sell. my understanding, Your Honor, is. So that, listening to that pressure, they were so close to getting to the larger issue. And the discussion kind of just veers off, but they were so close to getting on at the larger implication of like how this impacts the larger companies like 80% arms, Polymer 80 and all them. Is that you can make firearms for your own use uh, without being a licensed manufacturer. Um, if you sort of do that sometimes and, you know, every now and again, you're selling one to a dealer, uh, you, you likely are not covered by the statute. If you say, okay, so I'm going to sell one every day. Yeah. Every day you become a business. Right. And the, so if um, you're not covered, <laughs> you do it every once in a while, then it would not have to be serialized by you, the maker. Correct. And, and the rule is designed to make the dealer then serialize it before he 
resells. Correct. Is that, right? right. that is correct. And the, the the statutory line there is if you are engaged in the business of manufacturing firearms. Um, Mr. Mr. Olson brought up the issue of silencers, and as I understand, the statute requires that there's an intent element in the statute that that's absent from the regulation. So I don't think that's quite correct, Your Honor. So the intent requirement is not explicit in the regulation, um, but the regulation, this is when the regulation is defining a complete muffler or silencer device, and the regulation says the complete muffler or silencer device is two things. Uh, first, it's a muffler or silencer under the statute, so it incorporates the intent requirement. And then second, it's the complete thing. Um, and, and so the statute, as I said before, uh, defines a silencer to include not just the complete device, but also any part uh, that is intended only for use in assembling or fabricating a silencer. And so in defining a complete device, uh, which then certain regulatory requirements attach to, uh, I think the rule is trying to say we're not talking about sort of individual parts, we're talking about the whole thing. Um, and, and so, for example, uh, the rule says that if you're selling a silencer part uh, not as part of a complete device, you need to serialize that part. Uh, but if you're selling the complete device, you don't need to serialize each individual part. Uh, but, but the rule as it incorporates the statutory definition. I think the district court uh, understood that, got that right, uh, and that's certainly ATF's understanding. And so you serialize even if it's common household or hardware parts if you if you if if you go on the internet and find out that mr olson used the example you take a two liter bottle of coke and cut off the end right put some duct tape around it i assuming you can make a silencer that way uh, how, how does that work in this rule context uh, right so i think it, the rule as it incorporates the intent requirement so if you have a two liter bottle of coke sitting in your house and you have no intent to make that into a silencer is not a silencer, is not a complete silencer device under the rule. Uh, it's just a two liter bottle of Coke. If you cut it up and wrap tape around it and fashion it into a thing that you are intending to use as a silencer, uh, then I mean, I think you've created a silencer uh, and there are sort of regulatory requirements that attach to that um, that you would have to comply with. And 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 Ms. Smithgall, I think was gonna talk about this before she ran out of time. Why is the requirement that you keep records in perpetuity and then turn them over to the government at the end not a national registry? It just seems like that is a logical conclusion to, to that requirement. Uh, so I think sorry for three reasons, John. So first is just uh, in sort of a formal way, the statute prohibits any new regulation that requires turning over records to the government. Uh, here, the rule doesn't require turning over records to the government. That's a separate statutory requirement. The rule just extends the time that you have to keep records. Um, and, and sort of second, the same Congress that enacted the restriction on a registry uh, in the very same statute also enacted the requirement that licensees turn over the records to the government when they go out of business um, or, or when they stop sort of licensed activity. And so I think sort of whatever Congress meant by a national gun registry, they couldn't have meant that requirement uh, because they enacted both at the same time. Uh, and then the third thing, which I think is really important, is just when you think about sort of in common parlance what a registry is, uh, it, it's it's not this. Um, you know, nothing in the rule uh, or in the underlying statute requires sort of the um, entry of records as they're created. Nothing requires sort of centralization in the government of all these records. Um, licensees, as long as they're engaged in the business that they're licensed for, keep custody of their own records. Um, that they are not turning over to the government. They're not creating sort of a central database of all these records. Um, but I think the important thing here 
uh, again, is that, that sort of for all those reasons, I don't think the rule violates the statute. And I think it's important to appreciate uh, that requiring the preservation of records when a licensee goes out of business uh, is, I think, as reflected by the statutory requirement, a really important part of enabling the tracing of firearms. Um, firearms, when they're serialized, the serial number points you back to the person who serialized it originally, um, often a manufacturer. And, and so you then sort of have to trace the firearm forward in time uh, through the records. And, and so if sort of records from a licensee that went out of business aren't preserved, uh, then the trail just goes cold. There's a missing link. And the government often is not able uh, at that point um, to, to trace the firearm forward to whoever sort of is supposed to have possession of it today. Yeah. Because the ATF, it's not a registry. The ATF doesn't want to track everything. We just want to know exactly everything about every gun, track who's supposed to have it from beginning to end. Yeah, but it's not a registry, right? It's the ATF's position. If there are no other questions. Well, uh, with regard to 923I and the serialization requirement on importers and manufacturers, you said, I believe you said earlier, Congress thought it was capturing most, if not all, firearms in that section. But did, was there such a thing as privately made firearms in 1968 or whenever the Gun Control Act was, when 923I was passed? Uh, so I don't want to say that they didn't exist. Um, that being said, I think the rule makes clear that there's been uh, a, a very, very large uh, uptick or proliferation of privately made firearms in recent years. Um, as technological advances have uh, enabled um, these sorts of kits and um, sort of DIY home assembly firearms. And the idea is they thought that it was a de minimis, that would be your view, that it was de minimis at the time and now it's increased? Uh, I think that's correct. And I don't think there's anything, as I said, in the statute that uh, reflects an intent sort of not to apply that, not to have dealers subject to serialization requirements well, that the attorney general might prescribe. Though? But is that the test, whether they intended not to, or is the test whether they authorized the attorney general to? Right. So I think there's two different pieces of this argument, Your Honor. So one is um, in response to the argument that sort of Congress implicitly precluded this requirement oh, through 923i. Argument? Right. I don't think that's correct because right. I don't think Congress was thinking about this. Um, separately, as we've explained, we, the attorney general has authority to uh, promulgate this requirement uh, through a combination of the 926A and the 923G um, the authority that provides both specific authority to promulgate record-keeping requirements and uh, more general authority to promulgate regulations that are necessary uh, to implement the statutory requirements. And I, th I think this is... Do you have anything you want to say about irreparable harm? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it just doesn't exist here. Uh, as we've explained in the brief, um, uh, all the harms that uh, the other side is pointing to are either sort of compliance costs, uh, which may well exist, but uh, are not irreparable. They're not the sort of, as this court said. Do you have any Eighth Circuit cases that say that? Uh, not directly, Your Honor. I mean, I think the best case is Iowa Utilities Board, uh, which what describes the sort of harm um, that's required to support a preliminary injunction as harm that is so sort of certain and great and imminent uh, that it really calls out for the exercise of equitable discretion uh, to remedy it. And I think ordinary compliance costs just don't fit the bill. Um, we have the Second Circuit case that we cite in our briefs, uh, Spitzer, that I think is it, it very directly on point, but that follows even, even from... Even if they're not recoverable, the uh, Second Circuit says... Correct. Uh, I, I think that case, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was a suit against New York 
um, and the, the state of New York, uh, which has sovereign immunity like the federal government. And I think any other rule, uh, just to quickly say, uh, would be very strange because it would put the federal government and the states um, at a unique disadvantage to all other litigants uh, because of sovereign immunity, which just doesn't, I don't think, make a ton of sense. Um, and, and then uh, I think the, for the harms to the states uh, that they articulate are just some combination of indirect and speculative uh, and intangible. All right. Anything else? All right. Thank you for your argument. Thank you. Mr. Olson, we'll hear from you in rebuttal. So this is just rebuttal by two minutes way. on, please. We'll round out your rebuttal time. I appreciate it. There's Judge, a lot, I just, lot to cover in the case. There is a lot to cover, Your Honor. And Go ahead. I'll, just start it from there, man. Try to do it as quickly as I can. Judge Molloy, you had asked about a nationwide injunction. And I, I know courts don't always like this, but under the APA, it says set aside the agency action that's unlawful. And I think you either set it aside or you don't. But also, uh, more fundamentally, we're representing gun owners of America. We have 2 million people nationwide who support us in probably every zip code in the United States. Now, if that requires us to go back to the district court and show how we have someone in every state that is affected by this, we're prepared to do that. Um, but I, I, I think that, that when you have a group like this, it, you know, who have people everywhere who are affected by this, the, an injunction should apply everywhere. Um, Judge Mulley, you, you asked, and I, I wanted to be clear because you mentioned not that ATF couldn't enact a regulation, but that we disagree with it or dislike it. And it's not just that we dislike it, it's that it violates the statute. And I'll give you another example, and it's with, with this concept of readily applied to unfinished frame receivers where they take words from one part of the statute and put it in another. And we point out ATF has never used the concept of readily looking at an unfinished frame or receiver, and they disagree. They say, we've always used the concept of readily. That's implicit in all of our classification letters for years. But a month before the NPRM, once again, was promulgated, they were in federal district court arguing that they had never, this is from their brief, we have never looked at, never used the amount of time to finish a frame or receiver. Yet amount of time is the first factor in this test that they now propose. And if it's the same test, if they've always used this test, why is everything changing? Why are all the items that didn't used to be guns suddenly now firearms, all the classification letters that they've issued in the past suddenly now rescinded? And if it's a different test, like we say, under the APA, they haven't acknowledged that they're shifting policy, that they used to have a policy that was bad, and now they have a new policy that is good and explain why the old one's bad, why the new one is, is good. Um, government counsel mentioned all the cases that deal with disassembled firearms and, and, and how all the courts all across America have held that if you, if you have a collection of parts that's just disassembled, it's still a firearm. We deal with that in the complaint. There's like 25 of these cases. Every single one has a frame or receiver. And a weapons part kit here does not have a frame or receiver. And the ATF admits as much. What's um, the status of the Texas case? Do you know? It is ongoing. There was a preliminary injunction issued. It is not as broad as this case. It doesn't challenge as many aspects of the final rule. Um, injunction was not nationwide. It was not nationwide. It was, it, was appeal? It, it is currently pending in the district court, I believe. Um, there have been other parties who have come in and uh, intervened to try to get right. within the, the umbrella of the injunction. The government has appealed the injunction. Do you know? I don't know the Do answer you know, to that. Mr. Question. Janda? Yes, the government has appealed and it's fully Fully brief, but not argued. Okay, thank you. Go ahead, Mr. Olson. You're uh, out of time. But I see my time is up, but we'd ask that you reverse the district court and enjoin the I final. I may ask a couple yeah, with ahead. your indulgence. Um, you're not 
arguing that this new rule violates the Second Amendment. As I understand your argument, it's just that they failed to consider the Second Amendment in promulgating this rule. Well, we are we have brought that claim and we are making that argument. We did not brief it in the preliminary injunction motion. So it's nor on appeal to us. Nor on so, appeal so to that you. issue's not in front of us. It it isn't in other than that it is because we have the APA problem that they failed to consider Bruin and the and the true meaning of the Second Amendment. They used this bogus okay. my, test. My that, second question. I'm trying to keep this quick. Um with respect to irreparable harm, given that that there is there, still allowed to buy and sell uh, park kits and so forth. The only irreparable, potentially irreparable harm that I see is what Mr. Olson referred to with respect to the requiring dealers to serialize. Do you have any cases that say compliance costs alone are sufficient? Not in the Eighth Circuit. Uh, in the Fifth Circuit, there is. Um, and I, I completely disagree. The compliance cost is the only thing at issue here. We, we have a, a private plaintiff who can't acquire the parts that he needs to manufacture his own firearms. He can't get his guns serviced at a dealer, even painted. This is not a process that takes four hours. It's a process that takes days. And he wants to go to a, an FFL and have this done. The FFL doesn't have the capability to serialize a gun. So they have to ship it off to Fargo, North Dakota. And it's got to go by FedEx overnight. That's $30, $40. It's got to go to another dealer who then has to take it onto its books. Who well, can presumably serialize. if this gets promulgated, they're going to buy equipment to serialize, right? That's expensive equipment, Your Honor. It costs well, thousands okay. and thousands of dollars. I don't know that every... Well, I said that's the potential one that I see, but right. I'm not seeing a lot elsewise because they can well, still we, buy and sell part kits. Do they have to get a license? They do have to get a license. They have to engage in all the record keeping, all the liabilities and requirements that come along with that. But we also, we represent industry members who, even if they're licensed, don't need a license to manufacture and sell these products for the last decade, two decades, three decades. These companies have laid off employees. They have lost huge amounts. Sometimes we've talked eight, 70, 80, 90% of their revenue. One company we talked to is already going out of business. They said, we can't continue because this is what we sell and it, and it doesn't make sense to, to simply continue. Um, all right. I think you've answered the irreparable harm. Thank question. you. Unless you have any no, no. Thank you. Mike. All right. Very well. Thank you for your argument. Thank you to both, all counsel for your arguments. The case is submitted and the court will file a decision in due course. So those are our arguments. The last thing I want to hit on is right there at the end, they finally get to the impact on companies that are essentially targeted by this new rule, like 80% armed polymer 80 and so many others, um, how for them to come into compliance with this new rule puts them essentially at risk of having to shut down. A lot of companies have lost significant amount of revenue because of this new rule. So they kind of finally hit at it there at the end, but in passing and it's not fully flushed out. Um, I, I think the fifth circuit case, uh, Vanderstock, which you heard them mention during the oral arguments, is a little bit better at flushing out the impact to individual companies. Um, and that's why there were injunctions for those specific companies like Defense Distributed, Tactical Machining, Blackhawk Manufacturing, um, so many other ones in the Fifth Circuit, uh, because they really focused on what impact this is going to have on various companies and their customers um, as a result of this new rule. So yeah, like I said, just some of my thoughts on this. I, I probably, at, by the time this podcast release, I'm going to put out a, a shorter, quick breakdown of the oral arguments on the main channel. 
but here on the podcast, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for you guys to listen along to some oral arguments, this eight circuit oral arguments. It's not a opportunity I think a lot of people have in their life or, or maybe even take in their life to want to listen to oral arguments, but I thought it'd be kind of neat to do this on, as on, you know, on the podcast form, listen to it with you all and, and give some of my insights as I'm kind of going through it. And like I said, sometimes these or arguments are very frustrating to listen to, especially when you hear some of the arguments presented by the government here, the ATF. And even sometimes when you hear some of the uh, arguments pushed by judges on various panels can be very frustrating depending on what statements they they make or what positions they take. So um, yeah, let me know if you guys like this. Let me know down in the comment section if you like this type of thing and maybe we can do uh, some more kind of oral argument listens. Uh, one of the ones I would really love to do is like go back and revisit the Heller oral arguments and the Bruin oral arguments on podcast form and listen to those and uh, with you all and give my take on them, especially now in, in hindsight. So uh, let me know what you guys think down below in the comment section. If you guys are listening to this or watching this over on the uh, second YouTube channel, the Arm Scholar podcast YouTube channel, make sure you're subscribed because this is a completely different channel. I think some people are not realizing that this is a completely different YouTube channel, even though the name is completely different and I'm only hosting podcasts over here. So make sure you're subscribed over here if you want this uh, this type of content. And also this podcast is available on all audio platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now even on uh, YouTube Music is hosting podcasts. So wherever you purely listen to audio, you have that available too as well. And I would appreciate if you guys, if you're listening audio, make sure you're leaving uh, reviews and all that because that helps those algorithms. But yeah. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these oral arguments with me and, uh, coming up very soon, we're going to be doing some really cool things like some interviews with some, some very, very cool people. So, uh, thank you guys so much for all of your support here over, over on the podcast. I never would have thought that it would be this successful, but because of you guys, I started doing this and it seems like you all are enjoying this. So thank you guys so much for all of your support. And as always, thank you all for watching. And never forget, this nation was built by armed scholars, and this nation will be maintained by armed scholars.